Welcome to another episode of Free For All. This is one of your hosts, Big John, and I'm joined by the legendary libertarian broadcaster. We all know him, Bob Zadek. Bob, how are you doing today? Uh, thank you for that warm and dishonest introduction. I appreciate it. Oh, my goodness. The audience is live today. It, it is live. And, you know, Bob, we have a couple of we have several wonderful guests for today's uh, panel episode. Uh, as you could tell, one of the uh, of our guests is a professional radio host. He has his own soundboard. He's willing to jump in. This is my pal from my Sirius XM days, Dr. Steve. Dr. Steve, how you doing? Oh, I'm very good. Thanks for having me, Big John. Yeah. And, uh, nice to meet Bob. He's yeah, legendary. <laughs> yes. And, and Dr. Steve, of course. Jonathan, his... not so much. but <laughs> Do Dr. Steve has his own show on Sirius XM. Uh, channel 103 every Saturday night at 7 p.m. Uh, Dr. Steve is, of course, one of these guys. He's outlasted just about everyone that I knew at Sirius, including myself, Opie and Anthony, <laughs> uh, Ron and Fez, everybody. Uh, that the longest-running show on that channel now. That's right. And that includes Opie and Anthony. Uh, that's that's absolutely true, which is nuts, but we're glad to have Dr. Steve. Also joining <laughs> us today, uh, Gabby Hoffman. She's a media strategist. Consulted and award-winning outdoor writer uh, who's based in Washington, D.C. So, you know, she's used to running in sneakers from various evil creatures in that city, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> Gabby, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're absolutely glad to have you. And joining us also, the founder of Blockchain for Ecology and Hack for Earth Network, uh, Mr. John Connors. John, happy to have you on the show with us. Thanks, Big John. Excited to be here. I'm sure you are. Thank you. And uh, today we're going to talk about something that's in the news prevalent, something that is of concern to everyone. And we're going to be talking about the Ohio train wreck in East Palestine. Palestine or Palestine? Like, with all the jokes running around. Palestine. Uh, Palestine. East Palestine. Yep. Uh, so is that true? Because all of the news outlets I see are calling it East Palestine. So they're just completely wrong about that. I just... I, I, I think maybe I said it incorrectly. Forgive me. I, yeah. I oh, no, no, I've no, only no. heard it as East Palestine. <laughs> yeah. You know, Dr. Steve, well, I think it's a George Soros plot. <laughs> well, there's, I mean, there's a, in North Carolina, there's a, there's a city that's B-A-H-A-M-A -A -A, and it's pronounced Bahama. So I just thought it was one of those things. Yeah. I don't know. I struck out it, to be individual. I've heard it both ways, but I wanted okay, to, anyway. I wanted to kick off the show by asking Bob, you know, Bob is libertarians. One of the things that opponents of Liberty always bring up is, don't we need a strong government in, in times of natural disasters, of man-made disasters? That is one of the main objections to libertarianism, anarchy, anarcho-capitalism, any flavor of liberty movements. That is one of the things, right? Like, who will help us? Who's going to clean up the messes that these evil corporations make? And here we have an example, Bob. We have a, this train wreck in Ohio. Lives are threatened. Ecological potential uh, disaster. Bob, as a libertarian, I know you hate the word, not a political libertarian, a small L libertarian, Bob. What's your response to people like that? You know, you don't realize it, but packed into your question 
was a semester's worth of content. For example, <laughs> you said as if they're one and the same, a natural disaster and man-made disaster. You use that one after the other as if they're the same. What could be more different than that? Agree. Well, mm. That's, Agreed. that's well number said. one. So forgive me for taking a red pen and marking up the contact the content of your question. In my defense, as an old coder, I used an or, not an and. So it's one or the other, but that's okay. Okay, but these are the, <laughs> we're talking about, well, we're not sure what we're talking about. That'll be part of the show. Because yeah. the issue is how much of it was inevitable, was simply the natural wearing down of a metal, which is mm. neither man-made nor natural, a also, force majeure, a force majeure type of thing, right? Uh, if you want to deteriorate <laughs> into uh, a, a legal concept that became in the news, at least in my world, during COVID, mm. when everybody was asserting COVID as a reason to get out from under contracts they had made, that would be a diversion and a distraction. So let's mm. put aside force majeure, which gets a lot of attention in the legal community these days but True. let's uh, on as to your issue you then said don't we need a strong government and you suggested that libertarians have a position on strong government and that is a misperception that i need to correct and this is a perfect chance to do it go ahead correct me Bob. i warmly embrace a strong government, so long as it is using its strength in ways that are permitted under the Constitution. When it comes to protecting me, I can't imagine a government being strong enough. Mm. So, when it, however, when it comes to monitoring the cleanup of a an event in a state, well, then we have to have a far more complex conversation. I do that. I say make that point not to, again, correct you. That's not my issue. But it's to point out, I'm taking advantage of your question, sure. to point out that, no, libertarians are not opposed to government, per se, and we're not opposed to a strong government. Our focus is far more nuanced. We pay attention to how that strength is used, not that right. it's there. Right. So you're talking about a classical liberalism where we look for negative rights to be enforced, so-called, and I hate that phrase, but negative rights, you protecting me uh, and preserving the rights that we have. So I, I, I understand what you're saying. Um, let's go to Gabriella here. Uh, we had this train wreck in Ohio, Gabby. Uh Toxic chemicals were released into the environment. Let me just start off with a general question for you. Do you think the response was handled properly? I don't think the response was handled adequately or properly. And this is funny coming from an administration that says they're for the environment. They love stewardship. They care about the planet. They're fighting the climate crisis, so-called climate crisis. And they are so lackadaisical and really just unresponsive until they were pressured to to respond to this really horrific event, um, largely brought about by carelessness with axle technology from Norfolk Southern. And Norfolk Southern has a history of kind of um, 
um, out of date technology and they get a lot of government funding. Apparently uh, they subscribe to ESG. So these org entities, these kind of big powerful entities are very much subsidized by the government allegedly and um, not up to date with standards. And then you have the government, which potentially is engaged with them in some sort of, you know, uh, relationship like this and, and they don't care. They kind of turn a blind eye and then they say, well, it's the responsibility of the former administration, which engaged in deregulation, which is why this is happening. They've had two years to respond to these kinds of challenges, not saying that they have to be asserting themselves in every aspect of environmentalism, because when government gets involved and, and it harkens back to kind of the response of this uh, to East Palestine response, uh, reminds me, excuse me, of what happened after the Gold King mine spill. And Obama was talking about clean water and we're going to respond to this. And it, it took the Trump EPA to actually help uh, respond to this and recoup lost funds and help victims uh, get back whatever they lost, a lot of what they lost, their holdings, things of that sort. And so when real environmental crises happen, this administration is nowhere. It takes them two to three weeks to respond. And they don't really care about the environment. They just left a virtue signal on it. It doesn't mean they have to come into East Palestine and, you know, try to bail these people out or, or, you know, enact some sort of more draconian measure in response to this. I'm not sure what exactly is the proper response, uh, but they, Congress certainly has to look to see why this happened. Um, and if it does, you know, eventually become, maybe if there were some other factors into play that could have been caused by government uh, that uh, substantiated this perhaps derailment, um, if they were not following the proper protocols and all, um, turning a blind eye to different things or maybe just a very shoddy response to this where they're supposed to be active and, and helping to respond. Um, their role is supposed to be limited, of course, but if they're not responding to something as catastrophic as this, they say this could be worse than any other environmental crisis we have seen in this country thus far with all the water quality issues, the dead wildlife, and yeah. so much at stake. So um, yes, it it's interesting to me. And government can create a lot of environmental crises. I think of the Soviet Union where my parents fled. And anytime government is so vetted into this, um, they can perpetuate a problem. And I think they're going to cause more problems um, with their really shoddy kind of botched response to this crisis. Big John, one comment, if I may, just a very sure. brief one. Uh, Gabby uh, mentioned just in passing, not in depth, that Norfolk Southern um, spent its money, I don't remember her exact phrase, um, on, on, on technology, but didn't focus on this issue. It spent its money for other, for other purposes. And a underreported story, maybe it's only important to me, and that's why it's underreported, but it is important, <laughs> it was important to me. And that is Norfolk's, uh, it's been observed that Norfolk Southern spent a lot of money on technology, but it was required by the government, and by the way, the unions prompted the government to do this, to spend money on other elements of its technology, the purpose of which was to preserve the need for a certain number of crew members on the train. So Norfolk Southern has a budget for technology. Yeah. And it was told how to spend some of its money. Right. And therefore, it really wasn't, as a private actor, intentionally ignoring this problem, if indeed it could have done something about it. Yeah, uh, and, and I, I, that's a great point, Bob, because I think there's a lot of people 
who at the end of the day conflate free markets with big business. And that's not the case. Uh, big business is indicative, uh, the way it is in this country, of crony capitalism, of regulation, of government involvement. So the fact that there is an EPA and it's heavily regulated, and uh, to me, that always leads to issues. And to Gabby's point, you have this weird incestuous back and forth between corporations, the government, local, federal government. But in this particular case, uh, I think even the Washington Post, certainly not a conservative libertarian uh, publication, uh, came out and fact-checked the Biden administration by saying, no, Trump's EPA is not responsible for, for this uh, particular crash. So even, even a liberal, I give them credit in the sense that they didn't jump on this politicization. But to that point, let me switch over to Dr. Steve. Dr. Steve, you're a medical doctor. You're also a radio broadcaster. So I feel this is uh, these questions are right up your alley. First of all, there were a lot of chemicals spilled into the environment. We're talking about right. dioxins, vinyl chloride, um, hydrogen chloride, which is an acid, correct? Right. Yeah. Um, HCl, it's hydrochloric HCl, acid, but in gas, gaseous form. Gaseous form, right? So I have a two-part question for you. I'll lead off okay. with the first one, which is more straightforward. What are what is the danger that to humans, to residents in the surrounding areas from these chemicals uh, that that were spilled into the environment? Yeah. So let's just, if I can, I was an organic chemist before I went to medical school. And so I had great interest in, in this story. First off, in medicine, prevention is key, mm. right? This sounds, I mean, because for the lack of a bearing, you know, the, the train was lost. And, and uh, my understanding is that this thing was sparking for 20 miles and there were sensors that picked it up. I, I don't know if some, one of you all has knowledge about this, but I'd love to know why that system failed. Uh, but, but it, okay, so now we're here with this hand that we're dealt. There were 20 of the 150 train cars had chemicals on them. We're just talking about the vinyl chloride. And the, the problem with vinyl chloride is, is when it's heated, uh, it can, it's, it's a small molecule. It's a liquid under pressure and it's a gas at ambient temperatures and pressures. And when it's heated, though, it, it uh, undergoes a polymerization reaction where it turns from vinyl chloride to polyvinyl chloride, which we all know as PVC. PVC, yeah. And so we make pipes and all this kind of stuff out of it. And it was turning into that plastic in the um, uh, in the tank. And you go, well, so what? You got a tank full of plastic now. The problem is that the reaction is something that's called exothermic, which means it gives off heat. So it became a chain reaction where it was getting hotter and hotter and hotter. And they had two choices. They could just let it explode, which would have released vinyl chloride into the environment. Vinyl chloride is hard to get rid of. It's the gaseous form is, is heavier than, uh, uh, than air. Well, okay. I can get into the weeds, but when it auto refrigerates, when it expands, it then becomes heavier than, right. than air and it sinks. And uh, you would have had a bunch of vinyl chloride plus products of combustion. So they decided to do a, it's not a controlled burn. I hate when they say that, that's not right. It was a prescribed burn that was not controlled. It was a prescribed burn. And what they were hoping to do was to convert all of this vinyl chloride into hydrochloric acid, basically, hydrogen chloride, and carbon monoxide. 
And uh, those aren't great to have in the environment, but uh, certainly better than uh, vinyl chloride, which is known if it's in the environment for a long time or you're exposed to it for a long time, can cause uh, various ailments, including a, a really malignant um, a liver tumor. So, uh, so they decided to light this thing on fire. And of course, you don't just get the hydrogen chloride. Now you're getting some phosgenes and dioxins are always uh, created whenever you basically burn anything. And the problem with dioxins is you can't get them out of the environment. They're there. They're basically, they don't degrade. Uh, hydrogen chloride is very degradable. It causes irritation of the, you know, of the airways if you breathe it and of the eyes. And so people that were around there probably had that right. and uh, irritation of the skin, but that's short lived. But this other stuff is the problem. So uh, unfortunately, then you also get vinyl chloride. You just get less than if the thing had exploded and you get, um, uh, you know, seven and a half miles of the stream, apparently, from what I read, were affected. And there were 3,500 fish so far that were found dead yeah. and uh, et cetera, et cetera. So this is, I mean, uh, the chemistry of this is a disaster, but I understand why they did the prescribed right. burn. Right. So um, down the road, uh, you know, who knows? The problem is there were other chemicals there. And then you have... Uh, products of combustion that then combine with other things. And now right. we don't know what the heck right. we're dealing with. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and again, as I said, the dioxins are so stable, they'll be in the environment for quite some time. And, and what's interesting is this situation, from my personal experience, reminds me of 9-11, because I worked on Wall Street at the time. And I remember we'd be walking around downtown and we'd say, but we smell stuff. Yes. We, we smell stuff in the air. And the EPA for was down months. there. For almost a year afterwards. And the yeah. government came down and said, oh, it's safe. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And now we have the 9-11 fund because it was there. So yes. my second question to you, Dr. Steve, as a broadcaster, how do we suss out what's true and what's not? I mean, we saw it during COVID, <laughs> right? Yeah. To Gabby's point, this is a political football, right? Yep. Like everyone's trying to so well, it, What isn't these days? Absolutely. Everything is so uh, like we've been hearing... Republicans blame uh, Transportation Secretary Buttigieg on this. Uh, of course, Democrats are blaming the Trump administration for lax EPA enforcement and rolling back <laughs> regulations. Then we're a uh, pretty and like. And in the meantime, we have a community that that's has suffering chemicals. Right, right, is right. at danger, right? And to John's point, we're even arguing about whether it's East Palestine or East Palestine at this point, <laughs> right? right? Like we point. can't even get to this, right? So, as a broadcaster, help us as laymen understand how we can even begin to sort out without having degrees in biology or organic chemistry right. or, or medical degree. How do we begin to suss out as layman what's fact and what's fiction? John, yeah, very uh, difficult just be, uh, if I may, before ahead, Dr. Steve jumps in, what, what you have just asked us to do is what the country was asked to do a few years ago with COVID. Mm -hmm. I say it is not for voters, even for very active voters and people active in the political process, such as all of us, to figure out what happened. We have to figure out whether the various organizations that we rely upon behaved in a way they're supposed to. We probably, at the voting public, can't fix what happened. 
Agreed. or even prevented. We only can care that everybody is doing what they're supposed to do. And if not, there's accountability. I and, would hope there's accountability, Bob. That's the problem. So, to me, well, I agree. And that's yeah. what I was about to say is the issue we are being tested on as we speak today, we being the country, is are we able to allow the public to get objective, reliable information so that we can decide how to use that information when we buy things, when we vote for people in, in our lives. Yeah. That's, imp that's what's important, I think, to our yeah. listeners and to us. Absolutely. I didn't mean to imply that we're going to prevent the next uh, train wreck. What How I, do we know? Uh, who's lying true? to us? Who do we hold right. accountable? Like, so to Bob, yeah. if, we, if we frame it the way Bob just put it, which was excellent, we, we as laymen, Dr. Steve, uh, you're a medical doctor, I'm a biologist. We, we have some training. Some people have none at all. How, in general, though, how would you recommend that someone goes about saying, okay, I don't need to figure out why this happened necessarily. I don't even need to assign blame. But how do I know who's gaslighting me? Who's telling me the truth? Who's trustworthy? COVID was a great example. 9-11 before that is another good example of misinformation. Sure. You're well, the thing Steve, that happened in COVID. How would you do it? Yeah. The, the thing that happened in COVID, I'm glad Bob brought that up because I was going to uh, talk about it as well, because that's where this uh, I, this erosion of confidence in not only the media, but in quote unquote science happened because, you know, and, and one of the reasons was it was developing in real time. We've never seen that before. Mm. When, when they showed you the images of the black hole at the center of our galaxy that they did, you didn't see the 20 years before that where they said, oh, no, this sucks, this sucks, this sucks, right. we're doing this wrong. <laughs> right. You didn't see any of that. Right. And we just see the picture and we go, wow, that's cool, and then you move on to the next thing. What we saw with COVID was um, um, that we had a couple of hundred cases in Washington state. Well, it was stupid for me to wear a mask in Tennessee. And that was put out there. You no, know, it's dumb to wear a mask. And then all of a sudden we all had to wear a mask. Well, at that point, you know, there were, uh, the, and I, I go into this in depth in my show of the math of, of mask use. And when you've got low transmission, masks can affect things. So there was that. And then the transmission increase and masks are stupid again. And then, and then we find out, well, hell, this thing did probably come from um, a laboratory. What a surprise, you know, the Wuhan, um, uh, you know, coronavirus lab. But anyway, so we, we have that, but we were told all this time that it wasn't. And so, uh, but we've got new information. And so this thing has evolved over time. I'm not excusing anybody. I'm not condemning anybody, really. I mean, you could commentator political commentators can do that but the problem is is that then what happened was this thing became so politicized that you had people using statistics in different ways sure. so for example you could say that the vaccine there's a 30 percent increase in i'm just making this number up of myocarditis and but that is a relative risk the absolute risk is tiny and you can show the absolute risk is like 0.003 and so if you are a against the vaccine, you're going to say, well, 30% risk. And if you're pro-vaccine, you're going to say, well, the, the absolute risk, 0 0.003 that you're going to get myocarditis. And the problem is they're both right. Mm. Both of those statements are accurate. 
And the problem is, it's, you know, if you're in a bubble and you're only looking at, you know, right wing or libertarian or anarchist or left wing uh, information that, sorry, there went my camera, uh, <laughs> then, then it's difficult to suss this stuff out. So what I recommend is that you find a non-political source for your scientific information. We used to have consumer reports. Bob and I are the only two old enough to remember consumer reports, but it was uh, somewhere that you could go that seemed like they were pretty unbiased. They tested products and said, these are safe. This one's safer than that one, et cetera. And we need something like that. We have some of those resources out there. Science Direct is one. Uh, you know, there are other uh, uh, resources out there that you can, but it is extremely difficult. You know, you're absolutely right. And, you know, as a data scientist myself, I always find it hilarious when you hear the objections to statistics from people who don't understand st uh, statistics. For right. example, I've heard like, how can you tell what 200 million people are thinking by taking a poll of 500 people? Right. And of course, I could show you the math that's existed since the 17th century that says that's exactly how you figure out how 200 million people are thinking, right? It's something right. called the Bell right. Curve, the normal distribution, etc. Aside from an indictment of the American educational system, <laughs> uh, what do we have to say about this, though? Because, for example, you said, let's go to an objective source. Well, what about the CDC? What about NIH? Right. All of a sudden, they're not objective anymore because they're uh, not they, objective. They, they've been politicized, right? Right. Right. Um, right. How many times, and John, why don't you jump in on this one as well? How many times have we been uh, open to these things? On Twitter, I'll see something like Fetterman the other day, not to go too far away from this. Uh, somebody from the GOP uh, said, see, this is what happens. It's because he's brain dead and they're holding off pretending he's alive till August 18th when they can replace him with another Democratic senator. Literally nothing in that tweet was true. Right. Right. We don't know if Fetterman's brain dead. There's nothing special about August 18th. Anytime a senator in Pennsylvania can't uh, execute his office, the governor, the governor of Pennsylvania has the right to replace him with whoever he wants until the special election, right? So that tweet was entirely false. Something like 10,000 likes, 10,000 retweets. Why? Because they were speaking to people in their bubble. John, how do we get? How do we slow that down? Like, if you're building something from scratch, which I know is your specialty. If we're building something from scratch, how do we, how do we, and, and given we're not scientists, we're not all mathematicians, how do we get to at least some element of the truth? Okay, that's a great question. So firstly, you know, the bell curve is exactly what we use in technology to scale initiatives, but we don't use the middle of the bell curve to influence, which is kind of a confusing place. The late majority versus the early majority at the 32% mm -hmm. curve. Is, is confusing because there's such separation of realities in that in that world. In, in the early stage of the bell curve, like with Restorathons that, that the Hackworth Net, Network are developing, is we gather the early adopters and the innovators who like, we're trying to get electric vehicles, electric autonomous tractors to dig up the toxic soil so that we save people's lives and we make some money in the process. Right. We're trying to deploy poplar trees, Dr. Steve, because poplar trees actually eat vinyl chloride. Sure. So deploy drones to replant that, but we're not going to tell that story to the late majority, yeah. people who don't even understand drones or ecology. No, we're we're getting EPA folks together, ecological activists together. We're just hanging out in the echo chamber, hoping to scale at a later point in time. And I think one of the biggest issues with modern media is modern media is absolutely corrupted by large scale, potentially DNC, RNC influences. 
And so I think the only way to get good media is through podcasts, small channels that admit their bias, like, like Bob, he admits, look, he's getting Reagan and Bush, you know, he's getting, he's getting <laughs> OG representation of, of, of his values on his shirt. There's no hidden agenda here. It's very clear what the agenda is. And I yeah. think if you can, if, with honesty and transparency and, and a little bit of fact finding and, and, and activist action, we can kind of find out what truth is. Yeah, I didn't want to just say, just listen to my podcast. Get I just didn't. It John, seems self-serving. But. Hey, I, Jonathan, I'm going to ask. Let me ask Jonathan a quick question, real quick. Uh, um, the poplar tree thing is is really fascinating. Are you familiar with Nitrosomonas europeae? It's a bacterium that eats uh, halogenated compounds like Oof. and trichloroethylene and, and and vinyl chloride. I wondered if you guys could you know, throw some of that stuff out there. So Dr. Steve, you're killing it. So what <laughs> we do with, with Restorathons is we get smart people like you in the technician role to help come up with solutions. Then we pitch those solutions to government representatives and yeah. sign contracts and execute. So I am more of the community builder, storyteller, you know, I mean, less of the biological, uh, you know, I, I know about bio, bioremediation as a storyteller and marketer and less as a technician where I could tell you all the compounds that go okay. into it. So, you know, but what, the idea is, the idea say, is, but, oh, sorry. Go ahead, John. I was going to say, before you continue, if you and Dr. Please. Steve hook up and get a million bucks, a uh, billion dollars out of your ideas and work, <laughs> Bob Zadek and I demand a 5% commission for an introduction. Heck yeah on that. <laughs> Heck yeah on that. Uh, by, by the way, big guy. Big John, you, um, when you were bemoaning um, the lack of quality information yeah. and as sources of information, you named the FDA and CDC and you were disappointed that they had lost their objectivity. And I just want to comment on that and sure. on one or the other of, of us wondered how observed that media has gotten corrupted. They became mouthpieces of the major political parties. I want to comment on all of that, but it's a very, very short observation I want to offer. Go ahead, Bob. I find nothing wrong, nothing wrong with media, the New York Times, Washington Post, CNBC, maybe not so much, being biased. Indeed, go back to the early days of our country. Every newspaper had an announced, publicly stated bias. Sure. And you know, we survived. My problem is when media pretends they're not biased. Fake objectivism. And, and so my issue is not with biased media. It's with the dishonesty of pretending they're not. If yes. the New York Times would simply say, we have all the news that fits our objectives, and they tell <laughs> yeah. people, when yeah. you read the paper, that's what you get. I wouldn't care if they were biased. And as to how does the public, the lay people, get good information, to me... That's almost a silly question. I, well, I think, let me, I mean, just defend it. Why is it a silly question? Because very often in my life, I need the answer to a question 
that's beyond my competence. Any medical problem, I can't solve it. I need to go to a doctor. I don't bemoan the fact I'm not a doctor. How do I pick one? Somehow, I find my way to the right doctor or the right lawyer or the right plumber. So all consumers have to do is use the same discretion in picking their source of information, which is out there. It's all there. Be as careful in picking the information provider as you are in picking your physician or your lawyer. Problem solved. I And I agree with you wholeheartedly, Bob. That's certainly the libertarian position. But I guess what I'm bemoaning is an extension of what you said. So, for example, when uh, myself, Dr. Steve, and Bob, I'm assuming that John and uh, Gabby are several decades younger than us. But back in our day, you questioned the opinions of the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and uh, sources of, of information. But we, I don't remember us ever doubting the validity of the facts they presented. Right. So yeah, the New York Times, I grew up calling it Pravda West. I knew it was a liberal rag. I thought they were communists, right? I was very open about that. If I wanted a conservative viewpoint, I went to the Wall Street Journal. But in neither case did I, did I even begin to think they're lying to me. Mm. They're giving me false information. And I think we're at the point now where we don't know what the truth is, not not the opinions of how to how do we implement the truth, how do we react to the truth. That to me is opinion, and I'm fine with what you said, Bob. But how do I know when someone tells me of again, for example, Fetterman is dead, uh, brain dead, or he's not brain dead? Uh, toxic chemicals are in the water tables in East Palestine, or they're not in the water table. See, even that basic stuff is in question. Wouldn't you agree? Like, uh, Gabby, I want to, we haven't forgotten about you. Um, where do you think this comes from in terms of we can't even trust the truth, the facts anymore to be relayed in a truthful manner? That's very true because much of the media, and I somewhat operate as a journalist too, I've done a lot of freelance journalism multimedia. And I've observed with a lot of people, not every single journalist, but many of them, especially talking heads, they do incline themselves to avoiding objectivity. Now they, they've publicly declared, especially these younger kind of crop of journalists emerging uh, people in my generation, I'm kind of like a middle of the road millennial. I'm, I'm in my early thirties. Um, and so I see a lot of them say, let's just shove out objectivity out the window. We have to take a stance. So when it comes to these environmental issues, uh, namely the coverage of East Palestine or just in general over what are they covering about the environment, they don't have a curiosity to learn what are the true perhaps root causes, why is the government perpetuating a problem where they're supposed to go and help with cleanup um, wherever it's warranted. Are they going to you know, field the blame here and there? Um, and, and like you said, the NTSB director had completely shot down that claim that it was the previous administration's deregulation policies that had led to this, which is obviously crazy and unfounded for them to even right. surmise and, and to put there. Uh, but in journalism, um, with respect to this issue, I have this is why I started a podcast on these very conservation topics. And there are a few others um, who do this as well, not just me. But I started a podcast because I would see the language and kind of just the coverage of environmentalism be unchallenged of, let's say, fully adopting clean energy, solar and wind are very problematic 
from an environmental scale, and they largely can only operate with government backing, subsidized money. Um, they're not truly free market entities, uh, if especially on federal lands, but in small doses on private lands, maybe. But most of the time, they only operate because of subsidies. And that's what we're seeing now with all this money being injected. But they're just not curious about what's going on. Um, they believe in the climate narratives. They believe that you need big government top-down solutions to be able to conserve the environment, which is woefully inaccurate. You are now actually seeing increasing support for very limited government and even private individuals acting. And it may take private individuals to help rehabilitate what happened or the situation rather in East Palestine. I, I can imagine you're, if, depending upon who, you know, we can't forecast to know who's going to be president in the next year and a half or so. So let's say we get a different administration or heaven forbid we continue with this one. Um, I think it's going to be private individuals, nonprofits, and others who will help with cleanup in East Palestine. You won't be able to count on the EPA if it's the Biden administration um, to help with those efforts. And I think it's actually better that private individuals kind of lead the efforts and say, well, government has too much red tape. Uh, they may perpetuate the problem. They're not serious about cleanup. They're only focused on fighting climate change or persistent climate change, even though anytime they say it's so catastrophic and it's problematic, uh, we still continue to exist and we're not melting or dying um, in these very uh, kind of descriptors that they continue to say. And, and we're actually much better off. Emissions are down. Uh, our quality of water and air is a lot more improved. And so for me, yeah, it's just be distrustful of government. I would say their their role here should be very minimal just to have a quality of uh, the good environment, um, to allow people to recreate, to you know, for public lands to be able to access, balance multiple use, allow people to commercially um, engage in that area too, and, and to not meddle in the free market. But it's what we've seen largely with um, the left and even some on the right. Some of them have bought into this clean energy, highly subsidized kind of agenda as well. And so um, I think we just have to be distrustful of government, um, especially one like this, um, if they somehow do their job, that's great. But I'm very doubtful because, like I said earlier in our conversation, they perpetuated the Gold King mine spill. It took a Republican administration that succeeded Obama to actually recoup a lot of the monies, recoup a lot of the complaints. And a lot of people were very miffed by the fact that it actually was a Republican administration that took this very seriously. But Obama's administration didn't care. They had lots of crises. Uh, Flint, they had EPA employees going to the bathroom in hallways. It was such a you know, kind of in, in disarray. It was in shambles. <laughs> and so anytime I hear this administration say we're for the environment, I don't really believe them. Um, going off of what I've seen in the past, their actions now, it's just a lot of virtue signaling. And a lot of the press, unfortunately, echoes their sentiments. They're not curious. Um, and they, they should be curious. I think some, a handful are, but they're too afraid. I think a Reuters reporter, speaking of journalists, um, just admitted that he was too afraid to buck the narrative when it came to climate coverage and that confession that he posted and, and that is now publicly available is very illuminating. So I encourage your listeners to check that out. But I think slowly but surely many in the press, if they start to notice kind of the BS that comes with a lot of environmental coverage, I think they're going to perhaps be not afraid to objectively report on the situation and take the politics out of it. Yeah. John, no, can I, I comment? Uh, uh, one on second, Bob. I saw I saw John raising his hand. I knew he wanted to jump in. Uh, John, if you could turn on your mic, go ahead. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, uh, Gabby, really well said. The difference, though, I think, is uh, there is the room for effective government. 
And where I see the world coming in this post chat GPT world where technology is really flourishing in, in multiple sectors is ecological economics coming to fruition where we don't have a ecological, you know, false narrative of just the carbon problem being the only pollution problem in the United States mm -hmm. or the world where we have real time pollution monitoring of, of what's going on that I think that government with transparency is, is, can be effective government. And I don't think, I think we've never seen the level of, tra of ecological transparency that's coming down the pipeline that I believe can lead to effective government and effective public health campaigns like we've never seen before. And it's not science fiction. And it's really and truly maturing in, in front of our eyes quicker than the printing press. So I just wanted to at least leave. No, that's, that's transparent. Great government sounds like an oxymoron. <laughs> I, I, I was, was going to turn Bob loose on that one, Doctor Steve. Yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. Okay. No, Bob. I was going to, I was going to focus on one word that Gabby used in in her cautionary concerns about government. She said, uh, "Voters, people should be learn to be or become." distrustful of government, I would say, and I'm going to make only a subtle comment, not a major comment. The comment is people don't have to be distrustful of government. That's kind of a strong word. In my view, don't give government a presumption that if they are speaking, somehow, simply because they have chosen their occupation to be employed by a different employer, that somehow they are presumptively more honest. There's a concept which James Buchanan, the economist, presented uh, called uh, uh, where he invited people to realize that uh, government is occupied by humans, mm. and all humans have obvious tendencies. They want to get a raise, get a promotion, have more power, feel better about themselves. You don't leave that behind just because you work for a government agency. And if you just acknowledge that every human, whether they work for a corporation or government, have the same motivations to enhance their respect, their power, and their income. And if you simply don't give them a presumption, you are well along to becoming a more informed voter. That's a great point, Bob. And to mix two of my favorite people in one uh, comment now, I'm going to get half B.F. Skinner, half Milton Friedman. And that's going to be that there are no angels sent from heaven to guide us through life. They don't exist in government. We're all people. And the Skinnerian half is going to say, Local, localism and just-in-timeism are going to be the things that provide you your motivation for the way you behave, right? So to the extent that John was talking about we need this private government mix, I would ask him to refine that a little bit because I would say I think the innovation comes from individuals. And the closer to the individual that the government help is, the better off we are. By the time you get to Washington, it's a complete kludge. I can't count on anything by the time it gets to Washington. However, if I'm working with my local mayor, governor, state representative, I think I could get a lot more done. And with respect to Gabby's comments about climate change, 
dominating the uh, ecological environmental landscape. I agree with that. And something that I've noticed is humans are very good at addressing issues when they think it's a problem. When they start realizing it's a problem, Mm -hmm. it becomes an opportunity loss arbitrage situation, meaning am I better off spending my resources sending someone to the moon? Well, right now, maybe that's more important to someone like Elon Musk or to uh, Bezos or people, you know, entrepreneurs like that than making sure the emissions are down. Why? Because deep down, maybe the wisdom of the crowd is saying it's better that we colonize the moon and set up a moon base rather than worry about the carbon dioxide levels. I'm sure if the positions were reversed, these entrepreneurs, these uh, like who I consider to be geniuses, would be focusing on how do we fix the environment instead of how do we get to the moon, as an example. John, go ahead. I saw you had your hand raised. Thank you. Yeah, so I'll give just one example of, of ecological monitoring technology and how it impacted social the social fabric in Beijing, China, to be honest. Sure. Not the most responsive to citizen demands, you know, organization that you've ever heard of. CCP got hugely pressured by individuals creating Raspberry Pi air sensor technology back in like the early 2010s, you know what I mean? And what happened was even the U.S. embassy at the time put one up, which hired some folks. But what ended up happening was it got to the wealthy CCP oligarchical elites that were crapping in our backyard. (laughs) And what ended up happening was now Beijing is one of the greenest cities out there because of the pressure of transparency that was started by granular individuals and spread into government institutions. I think that level of granularity can be done on the per toxin level. The Ohio River Valley is a toxified ecosystem and has been polluted for years of industrialization. So it's not just this particular issue that needs to be cleaned up. Problem is it's unseen. I believe market forces are going to be able to count environmental externalities into the into the fray in, in technologically now uh, more than ever before. And I'm not biased against government because I do want government buyers to help make this happen and accelerate mm-hmm. this, but it can be done on the individual level uh, in the example of Beijing that I just supplied. Yeah, no. And just very quickly for our uh, listeners who may not be aware, when you said Raspberry Pi, you're not talking about a dessert. Nope, a small little computing no, device that's that's that was just programmed in a way to to measure air quality index. Right, and that it. particular device that was citizen science led, mm. you know, pressured the CCP mm. and made them change. Right, and the Raspberry Pi uh, spelled P-I after the irrational constant. You're talking about something that's usually very cheap, easy to acquire, right. uh, and and can get into the hands of citizens. Easy to program. Put a sensor right. on it, and then you can write code for it. And uh, yeah, they're exactly. Awesome. So I just wanted to make sure people weren't thinking that Thank people you. walking around with a baked good or something like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, we've got some time left in the show. I want to do a round robin and ask each one of you, with respect to the train wreck in Ohio uh, that we've seen and discussed, I want uh, you folks to give me uh, at least one solution or one step forward of how we can remediate the situation there. Let's start off with Gabby. Gabby, if you were Lord Emperor of the world, or at least of the U.S., what's what's your first step uh, towards taking care or remediating this disaster in Ohio? I would perhaps deploy different uh, private-public partnership entities. So there are many uh, different entities that could probably come in, do assessments, 
see what is going on, monitor water quality, see the impact to wildlife. And I bet you could get many different groups. You could get a Trout Unlimited, you can get uh, some local businesses, someone, lots of different entities to come in and help with cleanup, ensure that the people are safe if the government is not doing its job there and offer some help because private help usually goes a long way because it seems like these people will suffer a lot of downstream consequences in the near future. So they have to prepare for that. And hopefully private resources can come in and help with people if they need to relocate or if they plan to stay there and maybe take some sort of uh, preventative measures or, or have resources, you know, to, to live there and inhabit the region. So I would hope, I'd, I don't know how you would be able to do that, but I think people out of their own whim will go there. Um, perhaps maybe in another thing I would add is perhaps, you know, if I had the power to, I would summon the president to go there to assess the situation, but he's only very selective as to where he goes. But in my ideal world, I think I would like to see private entities working maybe with local and state entities, um, or even outright on their own with volunteer organizations, go there, help people, and then maybe see the president there too. Excellent. And Gabby, before we move off for you, uh, please tell us your social handles and your podcast that we could tune into. Sure. I have uh, different kind of variations of my name, but it's uh, if you type in Gabriella Hoffman, it's very easy to find. There's usually a blue tick, blue check mark associated with my name. And I host the District of Conservation podcast where I talk about kind of a conservative and even libertarian rep- response sometimes to environmental and conservation problems and offer solutions. So we have a great lineup of guests always coming on. And I just spoke to the governor of Alaska, really riveting conversation. Excellent. We're going <clears> to <throat> tune in for that. Thank you, Gabriella. Let's go to Dr. Steve. Dr. Steve, you're king of the world for a day. What do you do in East uh, Ohio? Well, the the first thing I would uh, absolutely make sure that uh, we get engineers involved is to do a root cause analysis of this problem so it doesn't happen again. And whatever went wrong with the failed axle sensor, sensory uh, contraption has got to be fixed and we can't have these kinds of things happening. You know, 20 train cars full of toxic chemicals uh, all because of an axle and a bearing. So. Mm. So that's one thing. And then, yeah, uh, apply all the science to this. We've got to be monitoring water for years to come and make sure that this stuff is not um, uh, in the water supply because it's not, as Gabby said, you know, in the short term, this is a long-term problem. People who have long-term exposure to vinyl chloride are the ones that are at risk for angiosarcoma, which is that liver thing that I alluded to. And just letting the people know what the risks are. And, uh, and then applying all the technology, uh, as Jonathan was talking about, and uh, getting that nit- nitrosomonas into the uh, environment to eat up some of this stuff if it is indeed there, which we highly, it's not a, just a suspicion. It's, we pretty much know it's there. So uh, I don't have any great answers. Prevention's the key to this yeah. kind of thing. You yeah. know, I can go and, back and, in time and stop it from happening. And you know, Dr. Steve, my wife, the microbiologist, is going to appreciate the bacterial uh angle that you just popped in there. Dr. Steve, tell us how people could get into the Dr. Steve business. Yeah, just, uh, you know, check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash weird medicine, or you can, uh, wherever podcasts are found, it's just called weird medicine. If you happen to be listening to Sirius XM on Saturday night, uh, check over on uh, channel 103 at 7 p.m. and other times at uh, Jim McClure's pleasure, but, uh, uh, or if you can listen on demand. Yeah, and you know what? I think you might have lost your bet. You didn't say the one word we said we were going to. I did. I said that vinyl chloride is a (laughs) (laughs) is a fluid uh, under pressure. 
Okay, he got his catchphrase in. That's okay, Dr. Steve. Don't choke on us. Uh, Jonathan, let's go to you. Uh, I know you have some I great... I don't have in- COVID. <laughs> some great innovative solutions. Go ahead. Thank you. Yeah, I'm planning right now a restore-a-thon, a restorative hackathon in the Ohio River Valley. It'll be held digitally, so brilliant people like your wife, Big John, can can plug in, or Dr. Mm-hmm. Steve, or Gabriella, um, to work together for solutions. So, so restore dash a dash thon.com and then slash ohio if you want to hear about what we're doing there and the thought is you know i mean that that never before in human history has technology been able to help us restore our ecosystems not from the climate false narrative of co2 you know issue these are real problems the vinyl chloride toxicity the toxicity of the 12 million person watershed of the ohio river valley how do we tangibly and and transparently restore and remediate i think that the vendors are there to to to, at our fingertips in order to do that and we need the early adopter activists the excited policy wonks the individuals like everybody here who showed up today to spend their time to talk about this very important issue to come together and continue to bring awareness for these solutions and and get these solutions deployed that's great thank you jonathan and now the last word goes to the dean of libertarian broadcasting my good friend and co-host mr bob zadek you you had a bunch of titles when you introduced this last segment um you started with if you were the the ruler i forgot the word you used i flashed back to my high school fraternity which was a national high school fraternity with believe it or not an adult leader who Mm. was i think in philadelphia how would you like to be a grown-up and your occupation is you're the president of a high school fraternity? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> but his title, and the reason I'm mentioning it, his title was the Supreme Exalted Ruler. And <laughs> oh, it, Jesus. Th- was. There was a number two guy. The number uh. two guy was the Exalted Mortal ruler, which when you're in high school and you say it fast, it becomes the exalted malted ruler. And that was what he was to us. So I will be any of those. I will take apart your closing question. And I would say there are several parts to that. First of all, the part I have no opinion on, but I know others do, which is how you fix the problem. God knows, not my job. But the more interesting question to me, because of my orientation, is who pays? Now, that's always a question I ask almost in any policy conversation. How you do it, how you fix it, is a technical question. That's for the Jonathans and the Dr. Steves of the world to figure out. They get hired. Because they're smart and they get hired. So I'll pass on how you fix it. I will focus on who should pay. And that's a more interesting question. For example, is it a problem for the entire country and therefore the entire country using federal tax dollars pays? Well, I don't think so. Is it a problem for the local I was going to say East Palestinians. That may not be the right (laughs) phrase, but I have no other way to describe them. Is it their own problem? After all, they live there. And why is it my problem? I'm 3,000 miles away. Or, Or the best answer is 
you we know the answer to who should pay and the answer is who's at fault putting it differently who could have best avoided the problem well that's an investigation we we have the way to sort it out we know how to gather information we do a pretty good job getting the information out there we sometimes stumble but we know how to gather the information and we get whether it's in a courtroom or through government gathering the information is kind of straightforward so long as it's not like impaired by politics so first you figure out who was at fault and maybe it's a bunch of people and they should pay their share in other words the existing common law of the united states has right. answered that question right. we know the answer to that it's only when government pops in and says okay big john you had nothing to do with the problem you live far away but you pay your share or you go to prison well right. that's a distortion so that's how i am totally comfortable with my own answer to your question because i've explained my reasoning people mm. who are at fault or who could have avoided the problem should pay maybe it could have been protected by insurance maybe it is and if people didn't have the insurance like homeowners who live in a flood zone and don't have flood insurance well right. they take the hit i don't take the hit so right. that's and i want to say that's a libertarian response i'm not going to bring others into my head but i'm going to say i'm a libertarian and with that uh, using that as a starting point that's my answer well bob certainly that is a great answer and certainly one that comes along with your libertarian principles and credentials so i'm glad you gave it to us for everyone out there this has been free for all with your host big john and the legendary bob zadek and our special guest today gabriella hoffman jonathan connors and dr steve join us again next episode for another great conversation See you then. Thank you so much, my friends. I enjoyed it. <laughs>